shoulder, we rifle and loot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. Ahoy, me podcast listeners. Join us at the Three Men in Retrospective podcast as we run a shot across the bow and review the entire Pirates of the Caribbean film series. Listen in as myself and me two mates, Garrett and Matt, walk the plank and parlay every piece of this Disney franchise that has made over four and a half billion in price. We're beggars and flyers and ne'er do well cast, drink up me hearties, yo ho! I bet we're loved by our mommies and dads, drink up me hearties, yo ho! So strap yourselves in, grab the rum, and scupper ye headphones. Percolated media is fixing to pillage your airwaves right now. Drink up me hearties, yo ho! Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. And toast to pirates. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, released on June 16th at Disneyland, July 7th, 2006 here in America. Budget was $225 million, with a box office take of $1.06 billion. Jesus Christ. Wow. And this was directed for the second consecutive time by Gore Verbinski. Yeah, I guess the first place to begin is it was not a one-time lightning in a bottle. This movie, for the record, before we talk about the movie itself and the production, broke the record for opening weekend release in the U.S. with a $136 million take and was the fastest film to gross over a billion dollars at the box office. It only took 63 days. And this is 2006, mind you, where prices were a little bit more negotiable. There was no 3D craze, anything like that. So pirates were in demand. But the question was, could they match the quality of the first one? So, boys, what is your experience with this particular sequel? And I will open the mast for whoever wants to take the wheel. This was one where we watched it on video. We didn't see the first or second one in theaters. wasn't until the third one, I believe. I was asking Laura, neither one of us remember watching this in a movie theater. So we believe we rented it as well. I know the third one was a theater view, and I think that was our first and I think last, actually, Pirates um, in a movie theater. But this one, at home viewing then and at home viewing now. This was a movie I was stoked for. I have to say, after the fun that was that first movie, and I remember feeling it back then, and I w- it was reawakened last week. I was so thankful for last week's podcast because it reminded me how much I did love this series at one time. And I fell in love with that first movie, and I was really excited when they said that they were filming one sequel, let alone two, which we'll talk about. I was here for it. Now, the way I saw this was, again, it was in theaters. I had made a trip out to Colorado to visit Cousins, and we went to a steakhouse to have dinner, and right after, we went to this movie. But again, that was my one and only time watching it until earlier today when I popped it in again. So, yeah, one and done, but it was a theatrical experience. 
The thing I remember most from that theatrical experience, <laughs> the teaser trailer for the first Transformers was <laughs> before Pirates 2. It was the one where Starscream messes up the moon landing. And I was like, oh boy, they're making a Transformers. Awesome. That's the most I remember. I did not remember a thing revisiting this. So I remember this pretty well. It was a theatrical experience as well. Of course, how could it not be with how much I loved the first one? And you could have sold me on anything. You could have just put up the poster and said Pirates 2. I would have gone to see it. But there was some promotional stuff that really, I think, sold some people about what this movie was going to be about. But before we get there, of course, after the impressive phenomenon that was the first movie, it was not a surprise to anybody that they wanted to do a sequel. But the important thing was, we're talking a three-year gap. It's not like they immediately dropped one out when they could have done that to tremendous fanfare. But they one up themselves where they announced they were doing two movies back-to-back. They were going full-on Matrix, which had done the same thing around this time, where they shot two sequels back-to-back that came out within the span of a year of one another. And they said Pirates was going to do the same thing. The second one, July 2006. Third one, May 2007. So if you wanted your pirate fix, you wouldn't have to wait that long for a third entry. But having said that, the writers came back and they said, we are going to do movies, sequels specifically, not in the vein of Indiana Jones or James Bond, but we're going to retroactively make the first movie part of a trilogy. We're going to use the same characters and we're going to expand the world. And with the popularity of Jack Sparrow, that made all the sense in the world. Yeah, at this point... Jack Sparrow and Pirates itself was a phenomenon. And that was my curiosity going in here. And I do remember kind of feeling it back then, too, which was 17 years at this point. The first movie was the little movie that could, right? We mentioned all the trials and tribulations it had to get to the screen, but it's the same old story. How do you follow something like that up? At this point, Pirates is literally a franchise. Pirates of the Caribbean is something that you mentioned And people used to just think about the Disney ride. Now they're thinking about Jack Sparrow. They're thinking about Johnny Depp. Some would even think about Orlando Bloom, if you mentioned. Like, it was a literal phenomenon. So how do you take that and mold it into a good sequel? You have this character who everybody, including myself, really latched on to. And you also have kind of a love triangle going on here. And you have a brand new set of villains, brand new characters being introduced, returning characters. It is the same old adage, can you make a successful sequel to something that was so such a phenomenon and also something that didn't warrant a sequel? By the time this was over, I wasn't clamoring for another one. They left that carrot dangling because that's what producers do. People can say Disney is out to make money all they want. Fact is, they do. And there's a reason for that because of the carrots like they dangled in the end of this, this last movie. So coming in, could they make a viable sequel? That was my question when I was revisiting it today. You know, one of the things these movies did, too, is take a ride that I used to be able to walk on with no more than 15 to 20 minute wait. And damn it, they made that ride popular all over again. <laughs> and that was before Jack even got added to the ride. It's, it's a complete snake eating its own tail type of thing, you know, where Disney takes a ride, makes a movie out of it. The movie influences the ride, influences the movie, influences the ride. It's back and forth and back and forth. And you go... Now, you know, on a Disney cruise, you got Pirate Night. You go to their island, Jack Sparrow greets you as you exit and walk off the boat. Jack Sparrow is synonymous with Pirate. 
completely. If if you were to ask somebody name a pirate, I can guarantee that's the first name that's going to come up before Blackbeard, before anybody else, before Captain Ron. You're going to get Jack Sparrow. Captain Ron. He dropped <laughs> Captain Ron. <laughs> yeah, and so, it, it's it's funny because Mike Ovitz didn't want Johnny Depp last time. And here, they were clamoring to bring him back to the point where Johnny Depp earned $68 million for this sequel alone. We discussed last time that this did for Johnny Depp what Iron Man did for Robert Downey Jr. Mm -hmm. And both of them have also been able to leverage that in their contracts and in the size of the movies that they were going to do. They weren't going to do it for the same amount of money, but the productions were not going to be the same amount of money either. The first one was a hit, but it grossed what, 600, 660 million worldwide? Mm-hmm. This one grossed 400, 500 million more than yeah. the last movie. That is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It was also made for considerably more money. Yes. You're going from a budget of 140 to 225. Now, I'm sure part of that, a substantial part of that, was Johnny Depp's salary. There was also a lot of talk about the scale of these, of two and three. The talk of the town was, you talk to the writers, you talk to Verbinski, we're going to up things, because we're all about escalation, so we got to make sure you can't go back to what you did before, you have to do something different. They talked about how they built fully working ships, they took a functional black pearl built over the body of an oil tanker. But it was not all smooth sailing on the high seas, because there was a point to where this script was unfinished, and the writers did not want to do any sort of changes, but to compensate, they wrote sort of a prep script in, in case things went down. Executives almost canceled the movie, but Cool has prevailed. They changed their minds. They added some rewrites, and they got two and three ready to go at the same time. So having said that, the trailer for this movie was, I think, one of the most viewed trailers back when YouTube yeah. first started. People were clamoring to go see this. It was not one of those things to where you get a sequel and people just kind of shrug their shoulders. People went in droves. The, the box office numbers prove it. But a funny thing happened. It did not have the best critical reception, especially in comparison to the first movie, much like The Matrix sequels. Yeah, and The Matrix, I was just about to bring The Matrix up. It's next in my notes. This was the end thing to do, wasn't it? Because the Wachowskis, they came out, they did those two and three back to back, and then we hear that Pirates is going to do the same thing. So I guess the end thing to do is to take a phenomenon and just make two sequels back to back. And as somebody who has been on movie sets, and as somebody who knows how hard it is to make one movie, you make two movies back to back, you are asking a lot out of everybody involved. You have a director who's in charge of both those movies. It is exhausting. Having to storyboard something like this, where you have ships, you have cannons, you have ghosts, you have everything in between. I could not imagine the task it would take to do something like this. And Gore Verbinski did come back. At this point, he was an established blockbuster director, not just to the director of The Mexican and The Ring. He had a huge worldwide hit on his hands, and he was back to direct a sequel to that. The more I think about it, guys, it this was a Herculean task to fulfill. We're going to discuss whether it was successful or not, at least in our eyes, story-wise. Obviously, it was financially, but God, just a huge task that I would not wish on anybody, honestly. It is. I think when you look at some of these size budgets, that is a way to amortize the cost. You almost have to at least second unit, third unit, some of that extra shooting, you've got to get done as much as you can. And when you're dealing with ships, you're dealing with water. I mean, there's nothing more notorious than shooting in water, shooting in tanks. 
anything that you can get for your next movie, if you know you're going to do it, is only going to ideally going to help your bottom line as you go into it. You know, the bottom line, let's answer the question of did this live up to the hype? Because I can tell you as a 13-year-old kid, for me it did when I saw it in the theater. I, I ran out of that theater saying, when's the next one coming out? And 10 months felt like 10 years. I felt like Davy Jones. I can't step foot in that theater for another 10 years. <laughs> it was one of those movies that I, I remember coming out kind of liking it, but I remember just thinking when I got home from my trip to Colorado, I'm like, okay, I don't remember a thing from it. Like, this was literally, guys, a first-time viewing for me because I didn't remember a fucking thing. Well, speaking of first-time viewing, let's get into the movie because this is an immediate sequel where we are not jumping too far into the future because we open on the rain-soaked wedding of Will and Elizabeth. Wow, what an opening. Yeah. jeez. <laughs> oh, Why, because the uh, her uh, her nipples were shining through? <laughs> I, I, I do crush on her in this one because she's 19 now or 20 now from literally shot one. This movie is, it's rain-soaked, it's dour, it's, it feels like it's going to be a darker tone across the board, not quite as lighthearted. Like, this is a weird, interesting choice, I'll say, to open the movie this way. So you mentioned tone. In a lot of ways, this is their Empire Strikes Back. I know that's the template everybody goes to for middle sequels, but it's considerably darker than the first movie, at least for the most part. It's still got those jovial elements I was going to say, it gets, like, pretty, it gets pretty goofy at times. It, 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 it does. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about the balancing act, but you have a story that is predominantly a chase. You have some pretty big revelations, and it ends on a cliffhanger that we will divulge. But we have two and a half hours to get through before we get to that cliffhanger. So Will is in handcuffs. We see the British military come in. We see the East India Trading Company, which is mentioned in the first movie. In full effect, they have essentially arrived to take the town hostage with the most British name possible, Cutler Beckett. <laughs> like, that, that's up there with Benedict Cumberbatch as the most, like, English name in, in the lexicon. I, th- I think he's quarterbacking where... for the Texans next year. <laughs> <laughs> he shows up as the representative of the East India Trading Company, basically the CEO, mm-hmm. by all indications, he does not come with wedding gifts. He comes with arrest warrants, as we find I mean, he out. Come, he, he comes with handcuffs. To be fair, those could be some pretty good wedding presents. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Adam, how was your wedding? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tune in two years from now when we do Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> like all the wigs that you see in these. In oh, these God. Movies, the patterned wigs. He shows up saying, look... This is a movie directly about consequences from the first movie. Yeah. Will is arrested, Elizabeth is arrested, and he shows up with a warrant for Norrington, but we find out that he has resigned and basically left. So that line makes you indicate it is a throwaway line that he will not be in the movie whatsoever. Yeah, you think? But we all know he will be. I mean... <laughs> I honestly don't know. I, 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 I didn't. You know, it's easy to say that now, having seen the movie, yeah. but they are charged with treason because they aided Jack Sparrow in escaping and they are sentenced to death. You could not start a movie on a more darker tone, a more somber note than your two main characters being sentenced to death during their wedding. Yes. God, I hope my wedding doesn't end like that. <laughs> By a guy from the East Indian trading. Company. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea. And this bugs me. One, this guy just bugs the living shit out of me. 
but I'm still trying to understand how and why he's got the role and power that he has as an executive from the East India Trading Company. Like, I understand their influence. I understand how important they were at that time, though I think they're bumping them up by about 100 years more into the current day than they were. But I don't know how this guy literally can take over the governor's area and decide that he's in charge of it all, other than just, hey, we need a villain that you think is a villain. I think the rationale is based on the fact that this town has been sieged by pirates. You had an escaped criminal getaway. I think there there would be some political intrigue to keep them stabilized, but I don't know if that should be the East India Trading Company. You think that would be part? You'd be the, the English Parliament going to Port Royal because it's technically a territory. Yeah, when he names himself, I'm Lord Beckett. That's who I thought he was at first until you realize, oh shit, he's actually not a lord really. He's kind of named himself. And he was not in the first, right? Nope. Nope. Okay. Although that wig probably was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all know that Adam Adam is racist towards people with powdered wigs. We've established this last time. Hey, you know what? Price is good enough that he jokes about his wig in this movie, and I felt seen. <laughs> that was for me. So he goes, where's Jack? And then we cut to the world's most dour, depressing prison where people are getting their eyes plucked out. This, this movie starts out like a splatterhouse horror movie. Disney banner in front of this movie. Yes. They're throwing coffins into the water. You see a bird knock on it only to then be subsequently shot. <laughs> Great. And before we get to that entrance, I do want to say, I mean, we talked about last week, Matt, Verbinski has his toes in the waters of horror. He did The Ring right before that first movie. So th- he's using those aesthetics for this movie. And I'm one to say, I said it last week, I'll keep saying it, and we'll see it in another series that we'll talk about later this year. You inject horror into a blockbuster series... It it gets me every time. And the fact that he's starting it like this, you know, it it threw me off too, man. Seeing these, I mean, literally seeing these coffins getting thrown into the water. I mean, it's crazy stuff to put in a Disney film. But, you know, we established in that last movie. Yeah, that last movie was fun and everything. But we said there were some dark points of that movie as well. But here we get the entrance of Sparrow. And I got to say, one thing this series has done great so far, and I'm going to keep paying attention to how well they continually do it is Jack Sparrow's entrance into scenes and into the film. They'll do it later on in this film as well. This is a great entrance, and I believe this was in the trailer, wasn't it? That I would have to go back and look for. Okay, well, it's, it's, just, it's a great entrance. No, it, it's a great entrance. It's the first much-needed moment of levity in the movie, and I think it's befitting that Jack Sparrow is the one to do that. But he shows up on his ship, hands give the severed leg that he used as a canoe paddle, but as it turns out, even though he's captain, the crew's not necessarily happy with him because they haven't done a whole lot of pirating since he's retaken command. So he shows up, he says, all right, what do you have? And he shows them, uh, they think it's a key, and he goes, nope, it's a drawing of a key. There's a difference. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> this whole banter back and forth, Johnny Depp's right back into form. Yeah. And again, for a movie that he is still someone that the plot revolves around to a degree, he still doesn't feel like the main character. That was going to be the compliment I was going to give it to, is the tendency when you establish a franchise in a beginning film is to take the character that people really rallied behind and really loved and turn it into the centerpiece of the story. They don't do that here, and that's a big compliment I'm going to give it. They give this to Will, and I think that is a very ballsy because of how popular that character was as far as Sparrow goes, but also great idea. And I do want to say also, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the making, but Depp at this point, right after Pirates, I believe he did Secret Window, which we'll get to in the King retrospective eventually. And he did 
that Willy Wonka remake with Burton. So uh, Secret Window was decently received, but Willy Wonka was not. So I saw him coming into this, and I was thinking, okay, how is he going to handle being back as Jack Sparrow? And I really enjoy him, again, in this movie, universally. I think he is back in great form. He is not trying to upstage his other actors. He's bringing what he brings to each scene, but he does it in a way that, again, just doesn't overstate its welcome, and I, and I respect that. Adam, would you care to comment? Yeah, I can't believe that I'm going to agree because I, from what I had remembered, was that I was sick and tired of Jack Sparrow really early in this movie and turned off, and definitely not the case. I was surprised that this movie opened up on Elizabeth and Will, just because, of course, you're going to open your movie on Jack, right? But they don't, and I think that, as you said, that's a smart move because it keeps Jack Sparrow not as the focus, but you're still able to utilize him to break up however you want, in whatever way you want to do so. And I don't remember if they continue that trend in the future sequels. I want to keep a close eye on no. that. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I, I, so far they've handled it superbly. He gets back on the ship and tells them, I'm going after this key. But even Gibbs realizes something has to be up with Jack because, as one of the crew members says, he's acting strange-er. So I like how we're setting up that there's <laughs> clearly – Jack is a character who's all about freedom – and just spontaneous actions, but it's clear that something has him, as Will says, spooked out of his mind. And it makes you wonder what that is. It's a great setup, isn't it? It's like, no, it, it totally is. Yeah. So we come back to Will, and here's where we sort of get the machinations of the plot going, to where Beckett tells him, I'll make you a deal where I will drop the charges in return if you get me Jack Sparrow's compass. Will thinks he wants the Black Pearl, to which he realizes that's not the case. He tells him, I will, like I said, give you letters of Mark to give to Jack as a thank you, to which Will responds, I really don't think Jack would see employment as freedom. So I got to say that for a movie that is a two and a half hour MacGuffin hunt, I think the reason why it works for me is the motivations of the characters make a whole lot of sense, and they're very clear with what they want. Up to this point, I will completely agree with you. I like being reintroduced to these characters. I like, again, the fact that they're making Will the centerpiece here, and I like what they're establishing. Up to this point, but there is a point in the movie where I turn on it. But here, yeah, I, I'm really liking what they're establishing. Yeah, I do think they're at least, I mean, and we're, we're not very far. We're 10 minutes in maybe of this movie, and they're setting lines for every main character here. However, I'm also right with Gibbs, who at one point looks at him and goes, so we're doing what exactly? And to me, that kind of sounds like the writer's room <laughs> in this movie as they're trying to combine and figure out what they're all going to be doing. Because I do think there is some of, okay, who's doing what and why and how do we get them all together? You're right, though, Garrett, that the first movie is Elizabeth's movie. This one's Will's movie. The third one is someone else's, which we'll talk about. So I like that we're focusing on him. And I do think Orlando Bloom is actually considerably better in this movie than he is in the first one. I agree with that. Yeah. And let's I talk do too. Let's talk about Orlando Bloom, too. By the time the first movie had come out, The Lord of the Rings was on its way to coming out, the third one, third and final at that point. And before this, what was it? Elizabethtown was the one that he did, which is actually a movie I remember really liking and didn't understand why it took the heat that it did. I'd have to revisit it. I meant to revisit it for this podcast, but I just had other things going on. So his career was also kind of getting established at this point, and... And instead of being like this big leading man, he was taking other kinds of roles. And here I, I really do like what they do with him. Again, he's the centerpiece here, and I respected that. For the record, they tried to make him a leading man with Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven and failed spectacularly. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
If you look at other roles he did around the time, Troy, he's basically playing the same character that he's playing in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I forgot yeah. that he was in Troy. That's the thing about Orlando Bloom. But the exception of Lord of the Rings and this, like, there's so many things that he's in that you don't even remember him being in. Or it's just an extension of stuff he'd done beforehand. So I like that, you know, we're setting Will up, because he's not really friendly with Jack Sparrow. He just let him go. So for Beckett's benefit, he'd have no reason to think that Will would abandon him or just cut off this deal. Especially since he's keeping Elizabeth hostage. I like this setup. We then cut back to Jack on the Black Pearl, to which he's a little disheartened because his rum ran out, so he has to go back into the cellar, the bowels of the ship, to get some. But he runs into a familiar face, at least for him, the previously talked about bootstrap Bill, Wolf's father, played by Alan Skarsgård. He's the patriarch of the family. So this is a character that we've heard talked about. Mm-hmm. Don't expect him to be alive, although technically he's not, as we'll find out. But he's, as he says, he's really here as a messenger. Jack thinks he's a ghost. He says, well, if you were a ghost, there'd be rum. And he hands him a bottle. Yeah, and a very good introduction here. And I want to mention something, too. We're going to talk about it deeply when we get to another character in this movie. But the makeup in this movie and the visual effects in this movie are so... They still hold up fucking phenomenally. There's always something going on on that face of, of Skarsgård here. Like, there's always, like, some kind of fungi or some kind of sea thing just on his face at all times. You can't take your eyes off it. Skarsgård does well here. This is a character, as you mentioned, Matt. He was mentioned in the last movie. Here, we're actually seeing him and... Most of the time when I see that, I'm like, oh, okay, they're just bringing this back just to bring it back. We mentioned it, so we got we talked about it last time, so we got to bring it back here. It actually feels kind of woven in nicely, I think. What I think this movie does very well is it has a very strong continuity through line with the first movie, and that there's nothing in here that I feel like is a retcon or is here as superfluous runtime. It's all here to advance the first movie, because in, in the case of here, he talks about how, yeah, if you remember the first one, Barbosa strapped him to a cannon after the mutiny against Jack, and he says, because I took the treasure, I couldn't die, so I was just left at the bottom of the ocean until I was, quote-unquote, saved by Davy Jones. So they mention him by name. And boy, does this movie build up to Davy Jones like he is like the ultimate harbinger of death. It's a great build-up, though, and it's going to take a while for him to get here, so we still want to keep his name in the lexicon before we actually get to see him. And I like the fact that they're keeping him in our heads. I mean, if you've seen the trailers, you know what exactly what he looks like and you, the way he is, but here we're uh, setting him up, and that's uh, that's Verbinski doing a very good bit of uh, filmmaking in that we're giving hints, but we're not actually seeing him. And he tells him that Davy Jones is coming for you, too, because he gave you the Black Pearl, he said you could be captain, and Jack, of course, tries to talk his way out of it by saying, like, look, I was only captain for two years, and then they got rid of me. And he, it, you know, because Jack is a character all about self-preservation, as established in the first movie. And much like the first film, they're pulling cliched pirate stuff between Davy Jones, and he gives him a literal black spot on his hand, which if you know, tre- if you know Treasure Island, that's from that. Yeah, a lot of uh, pirate references here. Same writers, so too, I want to say. Same exact writers as last time. Yeah, so Bootstrap tells him his time's up and just leaves. So for all we know, he could be just, we don't know how he operates. Is he a ghost? Is he a zombie? What exactly is he? So it makes you wonder, if you haven't seen the trailer, you know, what is Davy Jones and company? Right away, they also show you in the next scene his, what they call Leviathan, just destroy a ship from below the water. Mm -hmm. So now you're like, oh, that's why Jack's running. Makes total makes total sense now why he'd be so terrified. Yeah, again, it's set up and payoff, right, Matt? Yeah, exactly. The only thing I didn't... 
on that one, I'm like, okay, so we get the black spot. We know it's going to chase him because of the black spot. But yet, just so that we can get a good look at this, at this point, it's just a creature. It follows his hat. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay, I get it. But to follow his hat to do the damage is just like a, like, I don't know. It, to me, it's when we get some writer issues with somebody wrote this, but we kept it in, but it didn't tie in. The, it gets a little sloppy later on, but it's one of those why is Kraken really going to follow his hat of all things? Oh, it gets really sloppy later. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie that doesn't have the finest of edges. And if you really think hard about it, it's like a great amusement park ride where if you think too hard about it, you hear the creaking of the of the automatons and stuff. Will has a conversation with Elizabeth that I'll, I'll come back for you. To which her father's like, yeah, bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) See, I told you he was no good. (laughs) Will goes to question the whereabouts of Jack Sparrow, including getting slapped by the same women from the first movie. Oh, that was great. (laughs) That was fantastic. (laughs) Again, I, I, I didn't see the first movie before I went and saw the second one last time. So when this happened, when I first time I watched this movie, I'm like, oh, more chicks who hate Jack. Oh, no, those are the same ones from last movie. That was a nice little callback. Will eventually find someone who says, yeah, I saw Jack while I was delivering spices. I think they say the Kessel Run, actually, as a matter of fact. Or, oh, no, I'm getting my, fr- I'm getting my franchises yes, crossed. You are. I'm so sorry. We'll cover Star Wars later. Will goes on an island, walks around for a little bit, sees the remnants of the Black Pearl literally on the beach, finds Gibbs's flask, but is attacked by a group of racial stereotypes. And I'm going to say, this detour on the island... Which, you know, I know you're going to mention it, Matt, but they get in this, they're in this, uh, this Ewok trap, you know, this, this circular net. Uh, I'm to cross it off right now. <laughs> and, and Jack's getting pelted by melons and all this stuff, to me, brings the film down, I think. Cut it. Yeah, cut, cut this, cut all this out. This really, really put this movie in a grinding hole. And I know why Verbinski did it because we've had a lot of establishing things going on here. We've had great entrances. We've had a decent amount of action, but he wants to keep propelling the audience. But this didn't do anything for me. I was bored throughout the majority of this. Up until Davy Jones shows up, from here on, I'm pretty, I don't want to say checked out because I'm still invested in the characters. But this, the, the first movie, I never felt this way during the first movie. You know what's amazing out of these giant, what look like Tokra balls that they're hanging from, you know, from the island that all the pirates are in? That is a replica of something that is at Disneyland on Pirates Island. Really? Yeah, which is kind of cool. It's a gi- And it does look like it's made out of bones there, too, which is awesome when Disney used to actually have the stones to make something feel that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's a giant, almost like a jungle gym type thing, but it's a giant ball of bones for your kids to play around in. Yay! <laughs> That's funny. So I will, I will agree with both of you that this, from a pacing standpoint and from a story advancement standpoint, it serves little purpose except for one. This is an excuse to get all the characters in the same location. Yep. Yeah. Because it's Jack, it's Jack and company, it's Will, it's Barbosa's two crewmates who somehow survived. And that's a good point, because from the, from here on out, these characters are going to go off on their own little journeys. And I, I, Matt, you put it that way, it, it, it does kind of make sense. But I'm just saying, from a narrative standpoint, from somebody who's trying to enjoy this as a ride like I did last week, I'm feeling kind of bored, and the boat's getting a little rickety at this point. Fair enough. I, I do think this is the one thing I would remove almost entirely, or at least truncate it. Just have them go on an island and run into each other, and maybe you fight off this tribe. That's really all you need. But there's this whole thing where Jack is both the chief and a hostage where they're going to sacrifice him, complete with the Ewoks roasting over an open fire. 
when he's CT, when he's, yeah, when, he, when he's freaking Han Solo on a spit. Yeah, they'll do that later. But I like when he goes over to Will, and he's like, save me. <laughs> like, do something. And you're right about those um, those cages, to which Gibbs has one of my favorite lines. These weren't built until after we got here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a great line. I want to say, there's moments on this island. There are moments that make me laugh. There's moments that propel some things. It just, edit. Just, you could cut of this, what, 15-minute detour, it could be eight minutes, and it could still play and get across what it needs to get across. And I do love those those like eyeballs on his eyelids. There are, oh, yeah. You're, you're right, Adam. There are moments here, but I think most of it's due to Jack and Depp. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just, oh, boy, this just went on a little too long for me. So it's intercut. We go back to Port Royal. Elizabeth's father tries to send her away, only to be met halfway. The contact is killed. Elizabeth holds... Beckett at gunpoint to acquire letters. Hell yeah. Elizabeth sticking up for... I'd love that she will actually defend herself. Oh yeah, we talked yeah. last week that she's no damsel in distress. This chick, you know, if she was an alien, she'd be like a you know a pistol whipping mama right here. Like, she she is here to fight. Yep. And I, I, I did respect that they don't make her the damsel that I was expecting her to be. Elizabeth presumes that he's after the cursed treasure from the first movie, to which he says... I have no interest in it because there's a plot point where they say, Gibbs, early on, that the ship or the the island was claimed by the sea and the treasure with it. You're tying up loose ends there, or so you think. But Beckett says there's more than one valuable chest in these waters, so you're emphasizing that clearly he has a tangible goal that he's after. But Elizabeth takes the letters because she's smart enough to realize that when she comes back, there's nothing that would really save her. Then come back to the island, and somehow Barbosa's two comic relief guys... Um, <laughs> these fucking guys and and their dog <laughs> yeah well, it's the same dog for the first one yeah yeah and from the ride that should be said yep he's trying to read the bible and he's like you can't read he's like it's the bible you get credit for trying <laughs> I did like that line <laughs> you know what though they even had around this time or a little bit afterwards even on Disney Junior they put out a an animated series Jake and the Neverland Pirates and two of the characters are very much these two characters right here. Oh, jeez. The skinny guy, the rotund guy that are just nothing but slapstick comedy. And, I mean, in the first movie, these guys had some moments that were just evil and vicious and murderous. Here, they're side comedy. But we've established, yeah. Adam, we've established that this movie is started off so dark and dour that I, when these characters showed up, I was happy. You know, yeah, Sparrow adds, adds some levity, but these characters, they help Sparrow add to that levity because they make me laugh every time they're on screen. Mm -hmm. They're the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of these movies. (laughs) Very much so. So Will and Gibbs are in one bone cage with the others. They try to escape, to which they realize, oh, we only need about half of us to steal the Black Pearl. So they kind of, they they, they have to race up the mountain. There's that great moment of recognition where they all look at each other, and then they start (laughs) moving as quick as they can. But the other bone cage falls down because why did it have to be snakes? Is that, that for a reference for a show we'll be doing down the road? Jesus, you're just calling out everything we're doing this year, aren't you? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff upcoming, yeah. and we are we already spilled the beans on that. So between Will and company trying to escape, Jack trying to escape this tribe, here is where I do think they go a step too far with making Jack Sparrow into a Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton type, where he's getting pelted by melons, he falls through 800 yes. bridges without a scratch. Oh, 
God, yeah. I, I did not like this. Is he still cursed? Because you would think he's immortal to survive all that shit. Yeah. Yeah, and then the whole thing of him, like, all the melons are on the stick, and he uses it to get past this cliff. It, it's it's so truncated, and so, oh, God, I did not like this. Melon Company tried to escape literally doing the opening scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they're getting shot at by arrows underwater. Yeah, I thought of that, too. <sighs> yep, I yelled out, Jock, start the plane. <laughs> start the boat. And none of them get hit. Because they're all, they all, all the main characters have plot armor in this movie. They also stop throwing their spears as soon as they get close to the boat. So, eh, they're close enough. Let them go. They get to the Black Pearl. Will's like, I'm not leaving without Jack. Luckily, he runs right towards them and he goes, all right, time to go. So, thankfully, it, it's a 15, 20-minute detour, but it's also never mentioned again. So, it, oh. it, there, there's a certain part where it feels really superfluous. You would think somebody would have died on this island or they would have found a clue but as it stands, like I said, it's just a plot device to get everyone together. And Will immediately says, I need your compass. And Jack, seizing an opportunity, as he often does, says, I'll help you if you help me find this. To which Will goes, you want me to find this? No, you want you to find this. <laughs> and it gets these two, as you said, man, it gets them back together, right? You know, we mentioned last week that Will was kind of a cardboard character, and he would have to be to kind of bounce things off his co-star here but i think he handles himself well well in these scenes as few as there are i do like every time will and jack interact it's amazing how much better will seems to be written and acted this time about i didn't care a lick about it last week where this time yeah i'm enjoying him and i'm enjoying his interactions with everybody jack tells gibbs to go up river which makes gibbs rather apprehensive but then we cut to elizabeth in full clark kent glasses mode because nobody can spot the woman on the ship because she's wearing men's clothing. To be fair, as she herself says, she has pecs, not breasts. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. And that felt like something left over, as we mentioned last week, the way she was like so happy that she had something to actually put on her chest as opposed to the way her chest really was. And here she's kind of calling that out, and I found that funny. They're also working to get her with everyone else, because you have to get her from prison to with the rest of the crew. So I like that we're at least seeing her resourcefulness. They're traveling what looks like on the Louisiana Bayou. Again, I half expected Kermit the Frog to be sitting on a log with a banjo. <laughs> and this is where Gibbs turns into, much like the first film, Michael Caine's Alfred from the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, where he knows all the important exposition. Yeah. <laughs> this is where we get all the background on the Kraken, which is Davy Jones's pet, so to speak. Okay, let's talk about the Kraken. The last time I heard this phrase uttered like this, it was by Liam Neeson in Clash of the Fucking Titans remake. Oh, of all ones you're going to mention. <laughs> and then, uh, obviously, Orlando Bloom fought something similar, if you go back to that first Lord of the Rings movie. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's something to establish. It's something that is from lore. If you go back and you look at those old-style history books from way back when, there is a legend of the Kraken, but... I don't know. How'd you guys feel about this being, I don't want to say the final villain, the big monster. How'd you guys feel about the Kraken being the big monster of this movie? I think it's a perfect antagonist because of two reasons. Number one, the scale on it is so well done. It is. And B, I like that we, we are embracing old Nordic tales and actual sea monsters. I don't think that's too far out of the realm of possibility for this series at all. Yeah, for me, it was a natural extension of the sea and needing a creature, needing a monster. So I had no issues with it whatsoever. No, I, I, I'm not saying I had an issue with it. I'm just saying it was just funny to hear that for the first time since the, the, the Clash of the Titans. <laughs> you, you are not going to say release the Kraken without me thinking of Clash of the Titans. Mm -hmm. I do my best to not think of that movie. 
the original one. No, uh, take- I could take or leave either one, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Jack arrives at his an unrecognizable Naomi Harris. Yeah, that's Money Penny. Yep, the f- Money Penny. Absolutely. This is before that, right? Yeah, this was. Yeah, this is well before that. Yeah, well before. Actually, I think she had just started 28 days later. That was about it. Mm-hmm. She is fantastic. Yeah, obviously she didn't talk to Zoe Zaldana before she came onto the set. <laughs> Zoe Zaldana wouldn't have said anything positive about it. But yeah, I agree with you guys. I think I think she's a good presence here. I stretch to say I like her better here than I do in Bond, but I like her here. She's a witch doctor. She's like, all right, I need payment. Jack gives her Barbosa's pet monkey that is still cursed. I think shoots it multiple times to illustrate that. All right, so here's where we get all the Davy Jones backstory. So again, they're doing a lot of lip service. And it makes you wonder, all right, they better deliver on this character with a way to keep talking about it. Fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't I wasn't sure if you're gonna to get to his actual entrance or not, but Oh yeah. Yeah, that's what I said earlier. I, I think that the way they build him up is great. But if you're gonna build something up, you gotta pay it off. And spoiler alert, I think they pay it off pretty well. <laughs> yeah, this entire scene is built to basically describe Darth Vader to the audience, you know, and that's what they're doing here so i mean everybody's heard of davy jones locker it's something that i mean that's just a phrase in a lexicon well before this movie came out if you were going to bring up davy jones you as sure as hell better deliver and there's little little clues that things might not be as they seem because she has the same locket that you'll see the jones have later Mm -hmm. there is a body on a bed that the monkey immediately runs to yeah jack picks up a hat that if you're paying attention You'll know exactly whose it is. Because mm-hmm. you got to remember, these movies are made for kids, but they're smart enough that the scene is lit enough to where you can't 100% tell what it is, and he puts it down quick enough to where they don't say, like, ha-ha, look, look, notice this. You mentioned the way the movie's lit. I, I do I do have to say, the cinematographer of this was the guy who, he worked on Alex Preyas movies like The Crow and Dark City. And he also worked with the Scott brothers and Tim Burton a little bit. There's a lot of brown and yellow-orange in this entire film. It's, it's lit weird. I have to say, at least in the first half of this movie, it's almost lit like we said earlier. It's almost lit like a horror film. Yeah, I like how well candlelight seems to be the natural color scheme they're going for. Yeah. With a lot with a lot of these interior scenes. Because she lives in a hut with like dozens of candles. You knock one over, that place gets set up quicker than a joint at a college campus. But I, 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 I like how they talk about how Davy Jones is he was a man of the sea basically and he fell in love, so you're setting up his backstory. They don't really tell you what he looks like or what you can expect, but she says his kryptonite is he cannot step on land, but once every 10 years, so she gives him a jar of dirt to his utter confusion. <laughs> Great setup here. Great bit of interaction between Depp and Harris. Yeah, and this jar of dirt is going to be a running joke. People who don't really know these movies, they know the phrase jar of dirt because of this. Next scene is them going to seemingly what they believe Davy Jones's ship, the Flying Dutchman, is... Jack asks Will what his plan is. He just says, I'm going to go over, hack and slash whoever I need to do, and just go from there. But to quote Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Yeah, uh, which I wasn't realizing the first time. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not the Flying Dutchman. Like, it, it took me a minute to realize what Jack had done here. And he's playing pirate throughout this entire movie. You never really know what he's going to do. And he's got no problem setting Will out, sending him to the fishes. So a ship literally comes out of the water. And when I say comes out of the water, it's submerged and comes up. So this is the Flying Dutchman, which is the crew are all fish-human hybrids at this point. 
So the first film, we have skeletons. This film, we have basically the island of Dr. Moreau on the, on the water. Yeah, we got people. And in the three years, it's still amazing how much technology advanced because it's, it's almost seamless when you look at some of these guys. And this is when the movie picks wow. up for me. Right here is when Davy Jones comes to interject some life into this movie. I was not with it at this point. But once Davy Jones comes in, I love, love, love this character. This Bill Nighy, who's a great actor. It's just a marvelous character. And this is another just grand entrance. This movie, this series, this is so good at these entrances. Yeah, fantastic Love Actually reunion right here when Bill Nighy shows up. Wow, you're pulling out all the references, Matt, Adam. <laughs> If anybody has not seen the ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, documentary on Disney+, Plus, they have one big episode that focuses around this movie specifically for a big, big portion of it. And it's amazing to see the work that went into these people and specifically Davy Jones. It is a marvel of technological, digital evolution and what those digital artists did. And it still looks so Freaking wonderful. I'm oh. not going to say every shot looks great. I think some of the Kraken shots later, you can see the plates because of the lighting and coloring. But Davy Jones is nothing but always fucking perfect. Matt, you've been saying this entire podcast. Like, if you establish a character like this, you better pay him off. I think they pay him off here. I think he's a great character. He is, his motivations are clear. And I and I just enjoy, I, I love the way he interacts with everybody in this cast. And that's the danger of bringing in a new character like this. Like, how is he going to interact? You know, is he going to mesh well? We've seen examples of new characters just not really inter- interjecting themselves well into these franchises. Here, Bill Nighy, Davy Jones, he does it. And uh, it's a great character. God, I was so happy when he Bill, finally showed up. Bill Nye, he plays him really well, too. His voice, the way he does it, there's something about it. The way he clips his words when he does it, the way the disdain as he, when he tosses off Jack Sparrow yeah. is just is, is wonderful. And I know that Verbinski wanted him to do a Dutch accent, and he was like, I don't do Dutch, I'm doing Scottish. But, it, oh, man, it, it just seems to fit with those tentacles on his face. Yeah. It, it seems to fit. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you right. if you look at the behind the scenes of this too, like it's so funny because Bill Nighy is just wearing this goofy cap and this weird <laughs> suit, and people are supposed to take him serious with all these dots and everything around him. And <laughs> I don't know how you act being afraid of something like this, you know, because he's this this unassuming British guy <laughs> that you're acting against here. But man, the way he is uh, finally established here, oh, so good. I know this would have been an impossible task, but I really wish the trailers didn't show him. I know that's what sold the movie, but if you never showed Davy Jones until the movie, people's jaws would have hit the floor. You're absolutely right. And yep. you know what? You said that's what sold the yep. movie. Fucking Johnny Depp sold this movie. You know, People would have come back to see Jack Sparrow no matter what. So they're going to be there no matter what. And if you get this character, yeah, you get, the, you get people talking, absolutely, if they walk out of here for the first time. More than they even did, which was a lot, obviously, because it made over a billion dollars. But uh, yeah, I agree. You keep this character under wraps. So Davy Jones is basically... The devil. He offers people who are going to be damned and sent to hell 100 years in purgatory, where they, they work on a ship, they will mutate and devolve, but they forestall judgment. So he clearly has a method that works because he's got a sizable crew. He's literally picking people right here. He thinks he's going to take Will, but he's like, you're not dead or dying. And when he finds out he's associated with Jack Sparrow, he like perks up. And there's this great shot of Jack looking through the telescope he sees, he sees Jones on the ship and then he puts the telescope down and he's right in front of him 
That's great. Love that. Yeah. Love fan. that cut. Great bit of directing there by Verbinski. Again, Verbinski, he's on his game here. You know, again, I said he has a lot of balls to juggle with this movie, along with the next one that we'll talk about next week. But I think that first movie established him as somebody who could handle a production like this, and he's well on his way to doing it again here. He is bringing his A game to this film, even if the film kind of lets him down sometimes. So Jones tells him, look, I'm, I'm here to collect, bitch. He's a pimp. Bitch, where's my money at? <laughs> He says, look, I gave you the Black Pearl for 13 years. Jack gives the same spiel he gave Bootstrap. Well, I was captain for two years, and then they got rid of me. He's got an argument there. <laughs> yeah, but Joe doesn't buy it. He's like, all right, then you just sucked as a captain. And you called yourself captain when you weren't actually captain. I like that. So Jack does everything in his power to try and talk himself out of it. Eventually, they come up with a compromise because, as Jones says, one soul does not equate to another. Yours is worth 100 so I'll give you three days to go collect 99 because Will's staying with me. So I, I like that it's like a temporary ceasefire, but it puts Jack again on the clock, so to speak. And he has no qualms about leaving Will because Davy Jones tries to guilt trip him, and he's like, nope, I'm, I'm okay with condemning him to a life of servitude. Yeah, that was... Again, you just never know where Sparrow's coming from, and that's the secret to a character like this. Yeah, he could be quirky. Yeah, he could move in a whole bunch of different directions, but... To keep a character like this interesting, you have to have his motivations be kept secret. And when he does shit like this, like we were thinking, okay, Will's actually kind of establishing a friendship with him. He's going to be loyal. Oh, no. No. <laughs> He'll throw him to the purgatory no matter what. <laughs> like, if it means he gets his rum and he gets his gold, he will throw him to the fucking wolves. So after the Flying Dutchman departs, Gibbs says, all right, how are we getting 99 souls? Jack says, all right, we're going to Tortuga. Because <laughs> that's, that's the place where we can just get people off the street. And cut back to Elizabeth. Doing a goddamn puppet show with this dress, trying to convince this ship to go to Tortuga because she has enough inclination to know, as Will said, I'll go to Tortuga first. So she has an idea where he might possibly be. Where they are not doing so well with recruiting people, as Gibbs says, including the four we just got, that gives us four. Again, from the point that Davy Jones is introduced, like now I'm back with this movie. And these, these are the lines that I remembered last week, and I'm having fun with this week. Fifth person comes up and starts to tell their story. If you recognize the voice, eventually they show what's left of James Norrington, where he has become just a drunken shell of what he used to be because he lost them in a hurricane, mm -hmm. which ties into the end of the first movie where he would chase them down. So, you know, it's a surprise to see him if you're kind of... Because by this point, with Davy Jones, you forget a lot of the stuff that happened early on. They laid breadcrumbs for him to come back. So this adds another person who once he learns about the chest is like oh i want my life back so i i will do everything i can to get it i have to shoot jack but he's knocked out by elizabeth <laughs> again elizabeth not being the damn soul she's interjecting himself herself and interjecting herself well we then cut back to the flying dutchman where we see that jones runs a tight ship because they do all the work and he just sits in his uh <laughs> his captain's quarters playing the organ yes Great set of shots there with his beard playing that organ. That is fucking amazing. Again, this is this is 2006 effects, and they still look great the way he's playing this thing. Ugh. Yeah. Thought of what I would compare this movie to. This is very much the Infinity War of the Pirates movies. And what I mean by that is your villain is a step forward in CG effects, specifically mocap work. You have a movie that is all about stopping the villain from getting an object 
and it ends with your heroes defeated. It is very similar structurally to what we'd see with Thanos down the line. But because there's two Turners aboard, both Will and his father try to loosen up a cannon, but it falls, and Will is whipped in a scene that, if you are squeamish, will probably get to you, because while you don't see it hitting flesh, they use that great sound effect that they've used basically since Roots. Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, the only thing is Jones makes his father whip him. Yeah, that was... Wow. We're establishing how evil this character is, right? He's making his, his this character's dad whip him, and that was brutal to see. And and Skarsgård, and I'll go ahead and say, even um, even Bloom are they're playing it well. Like, oh my god, like I'm being forced to do this, and Will's just like, oh my god, my dad is actually doing this. <laughs> and you're setting up that Jones is clearly someone who may have had compassion at one point, but clearly he has lost all semblance of humanity, as indicated by how he looks. And this character was offered to Christopher Walken, for the record. No shit. And Ian McShane. <laughs> That's going to be funny later down the road. Because I would love to hear Davy Jones call people cocksucker for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so now the movie kind of slows down a bit, which is, which is needed after some action, where Will learns that once you're a part of the Dutchman, there's no escape until your tenure goes out, but Will realizes, I technically didn't swear an oath, so I can get out of here. And this asshole in the wall interrupts their conversation and says, you know, there, there's a chest, Jones's heart is in it, stab it, the, the curse is lifted. So now Will has his method to break the curse, but he has no idea what the chest is, so he has to go back to Jack. And that is another just great effect in this movie, that corpse on the wall. Just comes to life. And, you know, it, it could be kind of freaky. I mean, if you're a kid, I mean, Adam, would you take your kids if they were like six years old to see this? Uh, you know what? Yes. Yeah, some of these get pretty freaky. I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. Yeah, I don't know about six, but maybe a little bit older. <laughs> mm-hmm. like nine or ten. Yeah. Jack is all set to leave Tortuga, and he runs into Elizabeth for the first time since the first movie, and his first inclination, hide the rum. Yeah. That's what he tells <laughs> <me>. <laughs> He tells her, look... It's not my fault this happened, but Will is with Davy Jones, and we have to go get him. But to do that, they explain what the big deal is with the compass, why Beckett wants it so much. Because they reveal, or at least Jack says, because you have to take everything he says at face value, Mm -hmm. that the compass points to whatever you want most, which is why it technically doesn't point north. Mm -hmm. I mean... Once again, like, guilt trips are into being like, no, you want to find the chest, because that'll save Will. So, again, he's doing his self-preservation act and manipulating others to get what he wants. Yep. But we don't know why it won't work for him at this point. And the, the compass is one of those things that, when they revisit it in subsequent movies, it put a pin in it, because this goddamn compass has more loopholes than our justice system. <laughs> oh, jeez. So we cut back to the Flying Dutchman, which every time I say that, I think of Spongebob. <laughs> <laughs> where they're playing liar's dice because that's the only thing they could do on this boat. Yeah. The only thing they can major is their service years. Okay, liar's dice. Anyone else getting flashbacks to Bond playing video games in that one movie that we watched? But I thought of, back- I thought of Baccarat. I got a kick out of this bit of by me because we played liar's dice on base. So we could get a bunch of us sit around a table and, you know, we'd do it. But I was kind of excited to see liar's dice here. Huh. Will but, challenges the captain, which he has no, he doesn't have to do it, but he says, I'll trade you my soul if you give me this. And we talk about Nye's vocal affectations in this movie, how they fluctuate. Here, when he, he lowers his voice, it just says, how do you know about the key? So clearly it's like deeply personal for him. So it 
likely answers the legend that his heart is indeed in that chest. Yep. And that's, and that's a plot point that, look, we've seen it done where they establish something and then they just throw you a swerve. Here, they're actually showing us, look, it's actually in his chest. Like, it's not something that is going to just come blindside you. Like, if you watch it again, you will notice these little things that they're dropping. And I, and I respect that about blockbuster movies that do that. So they start playing. Bootstrap puts himself in and purposely throws the game against himself because it means that Will wouldn't have to be condemned to the ship. But Will tells him, look, I wasn't trying to win. I just wanted to know where the key was. But it begs the question, let's say he lost. Would the ship have allowed him to leave? We may get my least favorite type of scene where people have to sneak in on someone sleeping and steal something. (laughs) That's your least favorite scene? type of scene. I, this kind of cliche drives me nuts. Eventually <laughs> gets the key, says to his dad, I'll come back for you. And I'm sure that knife will play no consequence in subsequent Absolutely movies. not. Will manages to get away, but the Kraken tracks him down. And this is the first time we actually see it physically as it takes down the ship. They think they hit a reef. You know, like Adam said, there's certain shots where you can see some of the compositing. But when they're flipping people around and the ship's exploding... And Will jumps underwater, and you actually see what it looks like. It looks about as good as you can imagine. Yeah, and I, I, I want to establish that I wasn't putting this plot point down. I'm just saying every time I hear Kraken, I think of those whole Clash of Titans movies. But you're right, Matt. There's even a shot. I'm not sure if it's during this attack or later, but I, I call it the Titanic shot because somebody's falling, and you actually see the Kraken like with all its tentacles outstretched, and you see the face and everything. Those are all really, really well done shots. Again, they worked really hard on this, and it shows because the, the effects work in this is almost seamless. But you're right, guys, that there are times when it shines through, but not, not as much as I was expecting. You can also say R.I.P. to this dress. I think this is the last time we ever see it as it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Come back to the Black Pearl where Will, uh, Jack and Elizabeth, she tries to tempt him, but he looks at the black spot, and that's the only reason he does not kiss her. He has my favorite line in the movie here when she says, oh, come an opportunity where you have to do the right thing. And he goes, I love those moments. I like to wave at them as they pass by. <laughs> yes, great line. So all parties are now going to Ela Saves, which is where Jones has buried the chest. They get on, and of course they make Norrington carry the shovel and do all the digging. (laughs) Will shows up and is about as pissed off as you would be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, We then get 17th century reservoir dogs as everyone pulls out swords because, you know, now that we know the chest is a thing, I'm taking it, using it as I wish, and I will bid you all good day. Elizabeth tries to break up the fighting by pretending to pass out, but because they're men, she might as well be a bystander for the rest of the movie. But they make up for it with a hell of a sword fight, I must say. Yeah, this triple sword fight is great. I love this fight. They're they're revolving on all these like carousels and things. This is something that you would see in like a stunt show. It's fantastic. This three-way sword fight is great until it goes on just way too long. Ah, uh, I kind of liked it. But the longer it went, the on, more I liked it. Everything on this island. You know what? If it stayed with them, I think I'd go okay with it. But everything on this island goes too long. That I can go with. This is one of those instances, though, where I say I don't want to spoil too much of a good thing. I'm entirely with this. I like that everyone has dropped the facade. We're getting great choreography. They're using the environment well. Jack is not an outright stooge. We can see he still knows how to handle a sword. It's fun. I like it. When they go, when they run, and 
it's funny because they get an establishing shot that shows that it's actually a pretty good distance away. But when they get into this house and then get into that wheel, I'm like, okay, uh-uh, too much. You just took it back to that scene with the natives at the beginning of this movie, and I'm like, eh, uh-uh, this is why this movie's 335 and it should be, or 235 and it should be two hours flat. It's, this is what I want cut out. It feels like 335. You know what, though? But this is really in the spirit of pirate movies, though. You know, and, that, and that's why I'm kind of going with it, is if you watch those old Earl Flynn and those movies, like, this is the kind of shit they did, and they did it for a long time. It is. I'm more on that side than Adam on this. I, I really dug this. And I also love that they, they're not superhuman because as soon as that wheel lands, Will and Norrington have no idea where they are. Where they're like, they're sliding around, they can't they're stand up. Straight. Yeah, it's like as kids when you were on the on the playground with that little spinny thing that you could whip around as quick, as fast as you could. So they get back to the canoe. Norrington steals the heart out of the jar of dirt, runs off, so it lets them get away. And, and Jack's like, we should honor his wishes by leaving. <laughs> So you think you've seen the climax in the movie. Now there's another 20 to 25 minutes left to go. Yep. Because uh, we haven't had a big sea battle yet, where it's ship versus ship. The Black Pearl has to fight off the Kraken. And they do a number on the Kraken. You know, they're, they're cutting tentacles off. You know, they're hitting it with cannonballs, but it's like it's almost like unkillable. So all this shit's happening, and what does Jack do? He tries to get away because he takes a little rowboat and goes back. <laughs> yeah, which is, to me, it's, okay, he's still got the black spot. So I'm trying to figure out, is he trying to get away because the Kraken's going to follow him? But the Kraken never seems to follow Jack, which is what it's supposed to do with that black spot. It seems to follow the Black Pearl. So that just, I don't know, that bugs me every time it's not following Jack like it's supposed to. I get the sense it works specifically under Jones's beck and call. So I don't think Jones realized that Jack had left the ship, and that's why he doesn't follow him. I, hmm. I'm grasping at straws, but that's just my rationale. See, and to me, I just, I think that the... I thought that the black spot was like a beacon, but that could just be me projecting. And my, my inference was that that just means that two sailors stay away from you. He's marked. <laughs> yeah. But Jack, quote-unquote, does the right thing and come back, to which everyone's like, oh, shit, what do we do? We can't kill Davy Jones and the Flying Dutchman. We have to go down with the ship. Not that Jack makes this decision for himself, because in the big, twi- like, shocking moment of the movie, Elizabeth handcuffs him to the Black Pearl <laughs> and leaves him to die. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Elizabeth has got the most steel in the spine out of anybody in this series. Fucking love her. Yeah. And is this also when he shoots the barrel and it explodes into it? That's how he comes back. That's how he comes back, yeah. Again, I'm going to go ahead and say, every time Jack re-enters the scene, it's really well done. And this is a great heroic type entrance until what you guys just said, where <laughs> Elizabeth's like, okay, I'm going to trick you by kissing you and then handcuffing you to this pearl. <laughs> yeah, that Jack entrance shot, you're right, because he's like on the top of the stairs. Oh. It's a low shot filming up. The music swell, but it's not the Pirates theme, which I I think they could have scored it a little better for his re-entrance. But it's a great shot. It's blowing. There's a little bit of a solar, I guess it'd be a sea flare there in the lens. It's heroic. Yeah, it's great, great shot. It's a great shot. You're seeing like a close-up of his eye and then he shoots the barrel but then it's like it's kind of negated because someone's like well all we did was piss it off <laughs> <laughs> but i do love seeing those cannons fire and the damage we see on the tentacles mm-hmm. yeah even though it doesn't kill it you normally don't see something that big wounded where you actually see what it's doing to it and again the artists that worked on this thing are just fantastic job so jack indeed fulfills the old sermon of the captain going down with his ship Jones declares that their debt is settled, but he wants to see the chest for himself. And he finds out that there was nothing in there, and he 
the, the big trailer scene, damn you, Jack Sparrow, when he yells it. That's like the big money shot of the trailer. <laughs> Cut back to Port Royal. Beckett's wondering where the chest is. Norrington shows up, not with the chest, but with what's inside it, seemingly about to have his life brought back to prosperity. And then the, the movie ends on this really downtrodden scene where they're all just sitting there drinking. And, of course, Elizabeth is not telling them that she screwed Jack over. It was the ultimate like, wrestling swerve. Yeah, well, <laughs> wrestling swerve. Well, let's not forget, too, they've also filmed these two movies back-to-back. So they're setting up what we're going to see next week. And you said it, Matt. I mean, this is the Empire Strikes Back of this series, right? So you're not going to end it on the highest of notes. But I do like the fact that they leave us wondering what's happening with Jack. And they do leave me wanting more, as long as this movie is. And it is too long. I'll go ahead and say that before I get to my final thoughts of this movie. By the time it's over, I did want more. So Tia Dalma says that there is a way to get Jack back, but you have to go to what's called World's End, and you need someone who can get you there. So you see someone walk down the stairs, and before you see who it is, you see everyone react like, oh shit, not you. And it's uh, Captain Barbosa back from the dead. I had completely forgotten about this reveal. I fucking popped in my own house when this happened. I, I loved this. It made me jump for joy when I, when I saw Barbosa show back up. I still remember vividly people gasped in the theater because you have to remember this is 2006. Spoilers were not as much of a thing as they are nowadays. No, absolutely not. If, if this movie came out now, this would have been leaked two weeks before mm-hmm. the movie came out. Yep, you would have had a shot of the scene and everything. So he says, all right, what happened to my ship? I I love that that's his first line. That's his only line, but it's great. (laughs) Like, that's how we end it. (laughs) We end the movie on him where it's like, oh, God, can they trust him, A, and B, what does he have up his sleeve if he's back? Because he's probably going to score to settle with Will and Elizabeth. Well, he's got the monkey on his sleeve, doesn't he? That's true. (laughs) Oh, speaking of somber notes, Jesus Christ. On a scale of 1 to 10, we have finished... Dead Man's Chest, so what do you boys score this second endeavor? I'm going to go to Adam first. This was one, I was not looking forward to rewatching it, because I did not think that I had a good time seeing this movie, and I was surprised how much I was engaged and enjoying and going along with this film. It's too long. It does not need to be two and a half hours, even with 15 of those being credits. There's stuff to cut out at the beginning, there's stuff to cut out as we get towards the end, and... As it comes down to it, even some of the scenes I enjoy just stretch on a little long. But I could not believe, going back to it, that I enjoyed Orlando Bloom's character of Will that much more. Keira Knightley is still, she's a freaking star in this movie. I love Elizabeth Swan. It's not just crushing on Keira Knightley. I think she's a strong female character we don't get a lot of. Johnny Depp is really good as Jack Sparrow in this. And I thought this was the turn where right away it kind of took a nosedive. And I was wrong. And I'm glad to say I was wrong because he he brings it as Jack. But Bill Nye absolutely steals the show as Davy Jones. His cadence when he speaks, his tone, his inflections, everything he brought to that character is menacing at the same time that you want more of him on screen because he's that fun to watch. The script in this, yeah, it gets messy at times. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's times where it's nowhere near as sharp as it should be. It is dull knife at your side. It's not the sharp blade that we got last week. But this one is still an enjoyable film. It's a worthy sequel. And, yeah, going down to Davy Jones' locker was a ride that I'm glad I went on. So this Dead Man's Chest, while it doesn't live up to the first one, is a worthy sequel. It's a solid 7. 7 on 10. Well, 7 on 10. 
not quite a pieces of eight, but it'll do. Garrett, what about you, sir? Uh, coming in, I expected this to be a step down from the original film. It is a step down, but my surprise in revisiting it is that it's not nearly the steep step down that I thought it was. And what I mean by that is all these characters that we saw last time are given good arcs. They're giving good storylines. Even Sparrow, he was here for more than just quips. Which I remember that being the case where Sparrow's just here to kind of just liven up the scene and not really have anything on his own. Oh no, he's got he's got a good story going on here. And so the characters step up. That 15 minutes in the middle of this movie bogs it down and I really, really disdain that those sets of minutes up until Davy Jones shows up. When Davy Jones shows up, this movie picks up and it doesn't let go. It grabs you from that moment and this character is so ridiculously evil yet in a great fantastical way that it, it brings you in. So I... <laughs> God damn! I don't know if this will be a repeat of last week, but I'm going to say exact same as Adam. I have a seven written down here. I think I was expecting to give it a six, but the more the movie went on, the more I was invested in it. It is too long, but you cut out that 15 minutes in the middle of this, and you have a movie that is damn near as good as the, as the original. Verbinski does just as well here that he did last time, if not a little better. He is adding his horror aesthetic, which I love when filmmakers do that. I'll keep saying that. And the director of photography, while it's a little too yellow at times, like there are times when I don't think it's shot as well as uh, last time. Bruckheimer and company, bring it. This is a solid 7 out of 10 for me. So I'll spill the beans right now. We don't have the same score across the board. I actually went higher than both of you. Wow. Surprise of, I'm sure everyone listening. I like this one better than the first one. So I'll. Oh. I'll, I'll you like I'll it better? It. Yeah. Wow. So I, I think the reason why, and, and it sort of hit me when I, when I watched this, is that I think it breaks all the problems I have with middle chapters in that I don't feel like I watched two and a half hours of superfluous stuff that could be cut and you just go to the third movie. I think because this movie, what it doesn't have in the tightest of plotting, it makes up for with character and action servicing plot. Because plot and character are not always mutually exclusive. And I think this movie is a prime example of that. The plot, you can explain in a sentence. Everyone is after the titular dead man's chest. But because these characters are so much fun to watch and have clear goals and desires that contrast with each other, and you always feel like someone can betray someone at any given time, that reflects on kind of what I like about the first one, but the way that Jack could manipulate and make you like him one moment and then be detestable the next moment. Speaking of Jack, I don't think this is an instance where he overshadows everyone like the conception is with all the sequels. He's still very much a supporting character. Maybe he has more screen time than he does in the first one. But, like I said, the first one's Elizabeth's movie, this one's Will's, and to be determined on the third one. When I compare these movies, as often are, to the Matrix sequels, which we'll talk about at some point, I think next year, actually, it might be on the schedule, I'll have to double-check, is that because the Matrix does not value character, and what I mean by that is the Matrix movies are about philosophy and making statements and archetypes, the characters don't have to be deep. In fact, they're as shallow as a drop of water. But it works for that. But when you get to the sequels, that only gets you so far. But here, I like how everyone is defined. And despite a runtime that could lose that whole 
detour into the natives. Everything else I really love, and I think it's tremendous, satisfyingly as a chapter, but also teasing you with what you want in the third one. So I did give the first one an 8, but I can't go a 9. So I'm giving it the same score as I gave the first one, but I, I give it a slight edge. So this is also an 8 on 10 for me as well. Nice. Okay, so same score, just a higher emphasis. Speaking of higher, the movie we're talking about next week was at the time the most expensive film ever made. Yeah. Budget of $300 million. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. And only half of that went up Johnny Depp's nose. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so the third one, At World's End, a little bit of a year gap between this one and the next one. Do you guys have any recollection of seeing the third one? And if so, was it fondly? One and done once again, but I remember liking it way more than the second. That's all I remember. I remember seeing it in theaters. I remember seeing, thinking that it looked beautiful and was a shiny piece of crap. But it was also the first Disney Blu-ray that I ever bought. We got someone who liked it a lot. We got someone who thought it was shit. Opinions change, and I gotta be honest, it's been a while since I've seen this one. Part of it is it's the longest of the three. It's mm-hmm. damn near three hours. Yeah. God damn it. So, stra- so literally, strap in, boys, for next week's show. But there's a lot to talk about. You know, it was the end of a trilogy. We thought it was the end of the series until the money train kept rolling. But two shows down. I think these have been a lot of fun. I'm glad we're all enjoying these to varying degrees. At least for now, we got three more movies to go. So don't hold me to that for all five, everybody. But until next time, when we talk about Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, why is the podcast always gone? Thank you, everyone. Ten years I devoted to the duty you charged me. Ten years I looked after those who died at sea. And finally, when we could be together again, you weren't there. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast, exclusively here at Percolated Media. We're not out of this yet. Join us next week for an entirely new review. destroying my civic duty, sir. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. You have a date to pay. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. This ship cannot be crewed by two men. You'll never make it out of the bay. Son, I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Savvy. The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast 
is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Come to join me, crew lad. Welcome aboard. Edited by Garrett. Do you know how long I've been waiting for this moment? Voiceovers by Adam. I will not have that smile on your face as I strike you down. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. I uh, apologize if I seem forward, but I must speak my mind. I gotta go. It was a theatrical experience. And the one thing, and the thing I, I, I'm sorry, Matt. The thing I remember most from that theatrical experience. (laughs) I was surprised that this movie opened up on Elizabeth and, and, um, what's his name? Orlando Bloom. (laughs) I don't remember his name. Um, Will, just because. But he runs into a familiar face, at least for him, the previously talked about bootstrap Bill, Will's father, uh, played by. Oh, oh, I know it's Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård. He's the patriarch of the family. So now you're like, oh, that's why Jack's running. Makes total makes total sense now. Why he'd be so terrified? Yeah. Again, it's set up and payoff, right, Matt? Yeah, exactly. Speaking of payoff, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. That was that was me. I was trying to say the only thing I didn't on that one. I'm like, yeah, this is a movie that doesn't have the finest of edges. And if you really think hard about it, it's like a great amusement park ride where if you think too hard about it, you, you hear the creaking of the of the automatons and stuff. Was that on purpose, Matt? No. Oh, okay. Just, the amusement just park ride. consciousness, like a lot of Johnny Depp's improvisation. <laughs> you just said amusement park ride. I just found that a funny connection. <laughs> but they make up for it with a hell of a sword fight, I must say. Yeah, this triple sword fight is... God damn it, my bike keeps... Hold on, guys, it keeps bumping. Uh, this triple sword fight is great. They're, they're revolving on all these, like, carousels and things. This is something that you would see in, like, a stunt show. It's fantastic. Adam, you've been awfully quiet. Are you still awake? Damn it, I just realized I was on mute. I've been talking. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Fuck. Um, God damn it. Um, that, this, this three-way sword fight is, is great. <laughs> 